James Beston, Calibre's marketing lead, welcoming you to the autumn 2019 edition of the Calibre Echo. This audio newsletter is contained in seven tracks. In this edition, we hear from Calibre's director, Michael Lewington, as he heads for retirement and embarks on a new chapter. We give an overview of the Booker Prize Awards and also talk about National Eye Health Week and mention some books in Calibre's library that may be of interest. Finally, although it seems a little premature to be talking about Christmas this early, we have Josh Pallett, who is part of our membership services team, talking through this year's Christmas catalogue for those of you who like to get ahead of the game. start off by bidding a fond farewell to Calibre's director, Michael Lewington. He spoke to Emma Scott about his time at Calibre and his plans for the future. So, Mike, you've decided it's time to retire, um, but for our members who don't know, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about your background and how you actually came to be at Calibre. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I uh, served for 31 years as an army officer, I'm serving in the Far East, Germany, the UK and then obviously on exercises and operations in many countries. When I left the army, I went to work in London as a company secretary. And actually, uh, for those who have done that, working uh, quite long hours and commuting based part of four hours a day, um, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit better. And I saw an advert for a director of Calibre Audio Library. I had done some uh, charity work as a volunteer before, and I thought this really appeals to me. So I applied for the job and um, uh, got the job and that's how I got here. And how many years ago is that? Well, I kept joined exactly in September 2007. So it is just oh. a few weeks over 12 years. And what would you say has been the biggest change since you've been at Calibre? Well, there, of course, there have been uh, so many changes. I mean, I suppose the first one was the closure of the cassette service and the launch of the, our internet service, uh, perhaps, the, uh, perhaps the biggest goes back some way. I can't quite remember where I was, but I saw a company called Laplock Technology who demonstrated their what they called their boombox, which was a, a USB memory stick player. Uh, for those of you who remember it, it had sort of it had a sort of funny squarish thing of two sort of large speakers. It looked a bit like a small Dalek. Um, but I thought to myself, this is going to be the way forward. The cassettes were getting more and more difficult to support. And we at Calibre were the first to launch a, a memory stick service. I instant, instinctively knew it was going to be the future. And here we are now with uh, new players on the market and over 1,200 memory sticks every working day going out to members. What would you say uh, was the most enjoyable part about working at Calibre? Working with the charity, it's been a great pleasure to uh, work with all the staff and volunteers here. Um, all of whom, I'm sure you understand, are absolutely dedicated to providing the service to you as members. I obviously have spoken with members uh, on at exhibitions, and occasionally one or two of you might have uh, rung in and wondered who that person was on the phone. But as I take my turn in answering some of the phone calls of members uh, ringing in and dealing with your uh, issues and requests, uh, that also gives me a great insight, uh, particularly if people ring up and saying, or this is not working, or that's not working. It just helps us improve the service all the time. 
And that's been, uh, I really do like dealing with people. I can vouch for that. I've seen you do it as well. So, yes. <laughs> um, what would you say that your um, main achievement was during your time here? I think uh, it's quite difficult over the whole of the 12 years to answer that question. Um, but back in 2014, and we'd worked on this for three or four years, a parliament passed a bill uh, to recognise print disability and include what we term as exceptions. Um, and that recognised that people with uh, dyslexia, physical disabilities, were just as print impaired as somebody with uh, sight loss. And it was a major way forward. I mean, the United Kingdom was the first to pass that sort of exception, which has now been adopted by many other uh, European countries. I didn't work on my own. I worked with uh, two other dedicated people in other uh, disability charities. And uh, it took us about two years to get that through Parliament in 2014. And it will stand um, everybody with a print disability um, for a, a long time to come. And um, just sort of taking all of your experiences into account, um, what would you say that you would either take from Calibre or have learned from working at Calibre, if anything? Obviously, before I came here, I really didn't understand how, how difficult it was for people with um, uh, print disability, and particularly sight loss, to access uh, books. And so I was a member of what's called the Right to Read Alliance, which uh, speaks for itself. As a, and um, as you know, Calibre's whole raison d'etre is the freedom to read. I think that's one of the most important things I'll, I'll take away, um, that there are a lot of people, I mean, estimated 2 million people in the UK with sight loss, another 3 or 4 million people who suffer from a dyslexia, and it is so important that they can continue to enjoy books like everyone else. And I think that's one of my major uh, lessons to take away from the 12 years here. Now that you have some spare time coming up, what interests and activities will you be pursuing? Um, well, Emma, I am a uh, keen dinghy sailor, and I'm hopefully going to get some more time to enjoy that and sail, uh, not just at weekends, but at uh, weekdays. I enjoy uh, walking in the country and generally experiencing the country. I am a member of the Oxford Ornithological Society, which sounds pretty posh, but it's a very uh, run-of-the-mill club. And so I'm going to try and do some more bird watching and improve my skills. Um, I am a trustee of the Talking News Federation, which I'm going to continue, as there are over 300 talking newspapers, and many of our uh, members may well take their local talking newspapers, and I want to continue with that. It's a vital service for people. A couple of years ago, uh, I took up a new hobby, which is uh, mountain biking, but mountain biking across country, and uh, I want to continue to do a lot more of that on some of the cross-country trails. I just have to remember when I'm struggling uphill that I am now 65 years old and not 25 years old, but I will hopefully get a lot more. I'll get fitter and I'll be able to do a little bit, a little bit more than I can do at the moment. And have you read anything recently which you enjoyed? 
I've recently uh, finished reading The Ascend for Paul Temple by uh, Francis uh, Durbridge. Um, that's part of the Paul Temple series, who is a, a detective. Um, Binding the Frog by uh, Christopher Bookmeyer. Um, it's got nothing to do with uh, boiling a frog. It features a character called Jack uh, Parler Bain, uh, who is an investigative journalist um, who's not averse to perhaps breaking the law, which is why the book opens with him in prison, where he's broken into someone else to get some uh, uh, information. Um, and it's about the Scottish Parliament in a sort of current climate of uh, shock, uh, of Westminster-type sleaze, the Catholic Church of Scotland taking advantage, and a politician's discomfort. So it's a sort of thriller, investigative journalist book. It, it's, it's really very, very good. Um, that's it. Both of those are in the library. I've just gone back and literally just finished reading uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation, which is the first in his uh, trilogy. So next on my list is a book by uh, Ben McIntyre, The Spy and the Traitor. And um, that's the story about Colonel uh, Oleg uh, Gordievsky. And those of you may remember, he was a secret British spy. He was a KGB chief of first operations in London. And uh, he was obviously passing Russian secrets uh, to us. He was caught by the, uh, uh, the Russians. And, but arguably, it uh, changed the course of war. It's obviously a non-fiction book. And there's some quite uh, startling uh, revelations in that book about that uh, period of um, time. And when all those are finished, um, I've got a Frederick Forsyth book uh, waiting um, in reserve. Which one's that? That's called The Fox, uh, which I think I'm not sure. It's a, I think it's been published a while, but I, I haven't got around to reading it. Well, Mike, that just leaves me to say a big thank you on behalf of all of us at Calibre for all your hard work and determination, which has driven the service forward. Um, you're leaving us with a legacy that will continue to grow and we will miss your input greatly. Um, and we wish you all the best for your future adventures. I would just like to finish by wishing all the members of Calibre the very, very best for the future. I mean, I hope you all continue to enjoy the books that we put into the library and the service which we deliver. So a many, many thanks for all the support you've provided to the charity over my 12 years. Well, thank you very much. Next, Denise James, our editorial coordinator, tells us about the Booker Prize Awards and mentions some of her favourite titles from previous winners. News from the Book Prize front, with the announcement that the Booker Prize is to be sponsored by a charitable foundation called Crankstart, set up by the Silicon Valley billionaire and author Sir Michael Moritz and his wife Harriet Heyman. The five-year deal runs from the 1st of June 2019, following an 18-year partnership with the Mann Group. The prize will be known as simply the Booker Prize and the International Booker Prize, with no reference to the sponsor's name. Frank Stout was established to support, quote, the forgotten, the dispossessed, the unfortunate, the oppressed, and causes where some help makes all the difference, unquote. Recent donations have included funding scholarships for low-income students at Oxford University, Moritz's alma mater. There are no plans to change the controversial rule 
that writers of any nationality are eligible for entry, provided that their books are written in English and published in the UK. The prize winner is awarded £50,000, with 2500 going to each of the shortlisted authors. The winner of the 2019 prize will be announced on the 14th of October. The prize was founded in 1969, and the very first winner was Something to Answer For by P.H. Newby, set in Port Said at the time of the Suez Crisis. 1974 was a notable year in that the judges elected to share the prize between two authors, Nadine Gordima for The Conservationist and Stanley Middleton for Holiday. The same happened in 1992 when The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje and Sacred Hunger by Barry Unsworth shared the prize. The best-selling booker winner is Schindler's Ark by Thomas Keneally, catalogue number 10097, which is hardly surprising given the worldwide popularity of the film Schindler's List, starring Liam Neeson as Schindler. In 2008, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, catalogue number 9564, was selected as the best booker. And in 2018, 50 years of the Booker Prize was celebrated by awarding the Golden Man Booker to The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, following a public vote. Here are some of my favourite Booker Prize winners over the years. Vernon God Little by DBC Pierre Catalogue number 9086 15-year-old Vernon Gregory Little is in trouble and it has something to do with the recent massacre of 16 students at his high school. Soon, the quirky backwater of Martirio, barbecue capital of Texas, is flooded with wannabe CNN hacks, eager for a scapegoat. X-rated. The Life of Pi by Jan Martel. Catalogue number 6174. The sinking of a cargo ship leaves one solitary lifeboat drifting in the Pacific Ocean. Its crew are a hyena, a zebra, a female orangutan, a 450-pound Bengal tiger and Pi a 16-year-old Indian boy. The White Tiger by Aravind Adiga Catalogue number 8163 Balram Halwai is the White Tiger, the smartest boy in his village. Too poor to finish school, he works in a tea shop until a rich man hires him as a chauffeur and takes him to Delhi. Balram becomes aware of immense wealth all around him and realises the only way he can become part of it is by murdering his master. X-Rated 
Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, by Roddy Doyle. Catalogue number 4531. Paddy Clark is 10 in 1968 and loves George Best, Geronimo and the smell of his hot water bottle. He hates zoos, kissing and boys from the corporation houses and his brother. He knows that his mother is crying and that Dar leaves the house in silence, but he doesn't know why. The English Patient by Michael Ondarchi Catalogue number 3613 Memories of a passionate affair in Africa haunt the mysterious, badly burnt man who lies dying in a ruined Italian villa in the final stages of the Second World War. He is the remaining patient of Hannah, a nurse. Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey Catalogue number 2568 Oscar Hopkins is an Oxford seminarian with a passion for gambling. Lucinda Laplastriere is a Sydney heiress with a fascination for glass. The year is 1865. When they meet on the boat to Australia, their lives are changed forever. Some explicit sexual content. We are keeping with Denise as she talks about National Eye Health Week which is happening this autumn. National Eye Health Week, which this year runs from the 23rd to the 29th of September, aims to promote the importance of good eye health and the need for regular eye tests for all. Coming to terms with sight loss is a common theme in autobiographies written by authors who are visually impaired we have two moving accounts that may bring some comfort, as well as practical advice, to anyone who has recently lost their sight, as well as an excellent self-help guide on macular degeneration. They are Living with Sight Loss by Diane L. Woodford Catalogue number 12162 when type 1 diabetic Diane Woodford woke up to find that overnight she had suffered almost complete sight loss at the age of 38, she was determined not just to accept it and let people care for her. This is an emotional roller coaster which gives an insight into how Diane embraced her new life without sight. Notes on Blindness, A Journey Through the Dark by John Hill Catalogue number 12975 Days before the birth of his first son, writer and academic John Hull started to go blind. He would lose his sight entirely, plunged into darkness, unable to distinguish any sense of light or shadow. With astonishing lucidity of thought and no self-pity, 
he finds a new way of experiencing the world and of seeing the light despite the darkness. Macular Degeneration A Self-Help Guide by Paul Wallace Catalogue number 13488 This book explains a new way of understanding blindness, our number one fear in life, and why family and friends are critical to adaptation. It explains a new way of understanding blindness later in life, containing information you will not hear from a doctor or eye clinic. Following on from Denise, we go to Emma's interview with author Ellie Griffiths. Author Ellie Griffiths began writing contemporary novels under her real name of Dominica de Rosa before adopting her pseudonym and changing genre to crime mysteries. Before she became an author, she worked in libraries and publishing, which proved to be good stepping stones towards her current career. She lives in Brighton and holidays in Norfolk, two places that she uses as settings for her books. Ellie was speaking at Berkhamsted Library as part of Hertfordshire Library's Literature Festival, and I caught up with her just before her talk. Welcome, Ellie. Um, most people will be familiar with you as Ellie Griffiths, author of the Dr. Rhys Galloway and Edgar Stevens and Max Mephisto series, but that's actually not where it all started. Can you tell us about your first novels and what inspired you to become an author? Oh, well, yes, um, you've hinted at it, but of course Ellie Griffiths isn't my real name. My real name is Domenica de Rosa, or if I was to give it the full Italian flourish, it would be Domenica de Rosa. So uh, it sounds made up, doesn't it? And it sounds yeah. completely like a student him um, but it's my real name my dad was Italian and I was born on Sunday Domenica means Sunday and yeah so as Domenica de Rosa I did publish four books which were kind of um, romances really or history that sort of history romance family stories all based in Italy um, and yes I always wanted to write um, probably from when I was a child I used to write I used to make little books and write in them and when I was at school I used to write episodes of Starsky and Hutch that, <laughs> that people read around in class. Yeah, I do remember because I always used to kill one of them. I'd either kill, well, what can you do? I'd either kill Starsky or I'd kill Hutch. And I remember people used to cry um, when they read them and I quite liked that feeling, you know, that mm. I could maybe manipulate them into, into crying or maybe it's, it's just that the, the order in which you put words can make people laugh or cry. So always wanted to be a writer. Um, read English at university, then I went to work... Um, for a publishing company, I went to work for HarperCollins and wrote my first book uh, when I was on maternity leave, expecting my twins who are now 20. So I guess that was 20 years ago. And of course, that was as Domenica de Rosa. And so where did the, how did you settle on the name for Ellie Griffiths then? Well, what it was, was I'd written four, as I said, written four books and then I wrote The Crossing Places. Um, and my agent, I, Originally, I didn't really think that that was very different from the other books. It had a lot of similar things, you know. It had a strong female main character. It had a sense of place and historical themes. But my agent said to me, oh, she said, oh, oh, this is crime. You need a crime name. So I picked Ellie Griffiths because it was my grandmother's name. And she was Ellen Griffiths. 
and uh, so I thought that you know she I didn't know her very well she died when I was quite young but she was a very intelligent literate woman who had to leave school at 13 and go into service so I thought she would quite like to have a book named after her so uh, why it became Ellie I really don't know but recently asked my editor oh you know how come Ellen became Ellie and she said oh she said it just looked a bit tidier so that's how I got to be Ellie (laughs) Well, there's there's currently 10 titles published in the Dr. Ruth Galloway series. And as a reader, I have to say, it feels like Ruth's a character that kind of launches herself off the page at you and you become immediately absorbed in her world. Um, But when you started to write Ruth, did you have a real idea of who she was or did she kind of reveal herself as you went along? Well, it's a really good question. Um, Do you know what? Ruth did suddenly appear to me, and I hate saying this because I teach creative writing and I would never let my students get away with that sort of thing. But uh, Andy, my husband and I, were walking across Titchwell Marsh in North Norfolk, and Andy's an archaeologist, and he made this comment about marshland being sacred in prehistoric times because they thought of it as a bridge to the afterlife, neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. And that's why you get these bodies buried there, so-called bog bodies, is to mark that boundary. And so immediately I had the idea for a book. It's never really happened to me before. And I did sort of see Ruth walking towards me out of the mist, if you like. And I did feel like I knew everything about her. She was a forensic archaeologist and she was going to live on this deserted marshland and she was going to be called in by the police uh, when they found bones buried there. So in a way she did just appear. But of course in other ways she was constructed by me. And I think I did have a conscious feeling of wanting to make her real, sort of like a real woman, in that she she's very confident in her job, but she's not very confident otherwise. She's not very glamorous, she's overweight. So those sort of things, I hoped, would make her somebody people would, would relate to, really. Because there was a bit of a trend at the time, I don't think so much now, that where, where sort of crime heroines were sort of super women who'd run 50 miles for breakfast and, you know, cook a gourmet meal and all yeah. gorgeous. So I, she was a bit... I did sort of want to make her the antithesis of that in a way. There is a lovely realism about her that you sort of you relate oh, to. I hope I so. Yeah. I do. Yeah, hope I, so. I very much feel that. Now, halfway through writing the Ruth Galloway series, you then introduce us to a new mystery series, which is, features Detective Inspector Edgar Stevens and the um, travelling showman and magician Max Mephisto. Was it an easy transition to come out of Ruth's world in Norfolk and venture into another world in Brighton? Well, actually, it was. I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was a lot of fun, and I think it did me quite a lot of good, because I, as you say, was sort of about sort of five or six books into the Ruth series, and this series had been bubbling along in the back of my head because my granddad was in Variety. He was a um, comedian. So I wanted to write about that world, sort of 50s, the last days of sort of musical and variety. So it had been in my head to write for a long time. So when I started it, it was very different. Obviously, these these are two male protagonists. There's Edgar Stevens, who's a policeman, Max Mephisto. I love your description of him as a travelling showman. That's what he is. He's a magician. Um, so And it was set in the 50s and written in the past tense. So all very different. But funny enough, as soon as I finished a Stevens and Mephisto book, I'm very, very keen to get back to writing about Ruth and the same the other way around. So actually, I do wonder whether it's because of that that I don't feel jaded, you know, after 10 books. Um, Both of your series, I feel, would lend themselves really well to TV adaptations. And I just wondered if this was something you'd consider if the chance arose. Well, yes, I mean... I've just signed uh, with a TV company who want to develop... um, the series but but and that, that is very exciting but it's the third time I've done it so it'll be the it's the third different tv company who's tried to make something of it so um 
Yes, I, I would love to see Ruth on television. I think they, they, I could be a bit biased here. No, but I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I do think they would be good on television. But obviously it is quite difficult. People have found sort of difficulties. Um, I think also, although of course I would be delighted to see them on television, not least because it would mean that I could sell more books, but um, part of me would sort of worry about it. And I think one always worries, like if it's a series that you like and you like the main character, you do slightly worry about how they appear on television. And in a way, the pictures are always going to be better in our heads, aren't mm. they? But um, Would you want to have an input, do you think, in the whole process? Would you, if the, I'm assuming if it was allowed. Yes, I think I would. It's very funny because I was just looking at the contract that I've just... I haven't signed yet, I'm just about to sign it. And it says something like the, the, the producer's promised to have meaningful discussions with the author and I thought I wonder what they would entail a meaningful discussions but um I think in a way you either need to have lots of impact input and be maybe co-writer or co-producer or something or have none and I remember hearing Ian Rankin talk and he said oh he hasn't even watched the Rebus on television because he doesn't want to end up writing for that actor and I can see that side too. You know, maybe maybe the, the best thing to do is say it's a different medium. Mm. You know, brings it to know. a different audience. I it is, so. yeah. So I don't know how I'll be when it comes to the crunch. Um, now, your books have also been produced into audio format, um, and just wondered if you had any input into that process on narrators or anything like that. Yes, I do get to uh, choose. Well, I'm given a choice of of different voices. Um, to, to be the narrator and I take that really seriously actually because I love I love spoken books I love listening to books and uh, I know how important that is and I, I suppose it's because when I was young my mum always used to read to me and I read to my kids for a long long time so I love that I love the idea that someone's reading to me so I think that's really important to have the, the right voice and it's been very interesting um, the same woman has narrated most of the Ruth books but she went off to have a baby and now there's another woman who's also really good but they're, they're quite different so it's quite interesting listening to them and it also the uh, Stevens and Vista having a male uh, voice because it, obviously secretly inside you imagine it's your voice so when you hear a man reading it that that's great actually because it makes it feel very different which is quite nice and it's it's sort of I don't know does it add another dimension to you to hear the books read definitely aloud and... it does definitely it can seem quite it can almost be I don't know how to describe it, it must be quite embarrassing hearing somebody reading because you think oh did I write that it feels very exposing I suppose okay. um my mom um you know was partially sighted and often used to listen to them and other books you know on audio and I'd go in there and there'd be this voice saying and Ruth walked across the marshes and I'd think oh my goodness I wrote that but actually it, again it's I suppose it will be like maybe like when it's it's on if it's ever on television you suddenly think you see it in a different way so but I just think these these narrators are just amazing really it's such a skill I you know have very occasionally recorded things and I just find it you know it's so difficult um just just a, a last question really and going back into your writing and, and particularly as I imagine you've got to be quite disciplined when you write um and I just wondered if you had a particular um way in which you wrote so did you have you got a structure to your day and and do you write in a particular place so that you're sort of going out to work almost every yes day very that's very opposite because I've just in the last six months got a writing shed now which I've always <laughs> wanted I used to write in the house in in the in the sort of study but the room that the kids use for homework and things but now I've got a little shed in the garden and as you say it is quite different like going out of your back door just across the garden you know but it does feel like going to work and my cat always comes 
comes with me and it's quite sweet because if I'm not ready by sort of upper state he's there by the door as if to say come on let's get going let's get working um, and that's again when I'm at home I do try and write every day and I started about half past eight which my kids are now at university but that was sort of the time when you know eight o'clock when, when they left the house so I, I try and start then and I'll work through to lunchtime um I try and write every day at least a thousand words a day that's my rule because 90,000 word book will be done in 90 days 90 good grief you know, that's, a, that's the that's idea the schedule. <laughs> it's a schedule it doesn't work like that obviously because you sometimes mm. write a thousand words and then delete them all the next day but I think if you try if you work at trying to build up a manuscript a thousand words a day it does work and it's not too much it does, it's not too many a thousand is not too many so um, that's my well, that's my that's the theory of that it would put me to shame I think if I, <laughs> if I attempted well, that my kids as I said at university and they're doing essays and things now and they're, and they're saying oh I've got to write 3,000 words and I'm saying easy three days <laughs> well Ellie thank you ever so much for talking to us um, I hope this inspires members that may not have uh, had a look at your books before to borrow and listen to them because they are absolutely fabulous I'm a big fan and have been from the beginning um, but thank you for and thank you to very us much anyway. and uh, good luck with your wonderful audio library venture. thank you thank you <laughs> this is an edited version of our interview with Ellie Griffiths if you would like to listen to the full conversation then please visit our website at www.calibre.org.uk Author interviews appear under the link for choosing books in the heading titled Calibre Services. If listening to Ellie talk about her writing has inspired you to seek out her books, then we have several of her books in the library. From the Ruth Galloway Mysteries, we have The Crossing Places, catalogue number 8907 The Jane Stone catalogue number 8906 The House at Sea's End catalogue number 9194 A Room Full of Bones catalogue number 9438 A Dying Fall catalogue number 9912 The Outcast Dead Catalogue number 10421. The Ghost Fields. Catalogue number 10468. The Woman in Blue. Catalogue number 12068. The Chalk Pit. Catalogue number 12314. And The Dark Angel. Catalogue number 12698. Then from the Stevens and Mephisto Mysteries, we have The Zigzag Girl, catalogue number 10422. Smoke and Mirrors, catalogue number 11488. The Blood Card, catalogue number 11977. And finally, The Vanishing Box, catalogue number one, two, four, five, three. To finish off, Josh is going to talk us through Calibre's Christmas catalogue for 2019. And now we would like to announce the Calibre Christmas range for 2019. We have eight new Christmas cards. 
our popular variety pack, our colourful 2020 calendar, our new birthday designs, and, introducing for the first time, a set of blank cards for you to write your own personal greetings and messages. All our cards can be posted individually at small letter rate, first or second class. Our first Christmas card is Snowman and his big hat. A close-up photograph of a happy, smiling snowman, standing proudly in crisp white snow. The snowman is dressed in a colourful red bubble hat and scarf, and his arms are made from snowy twigs. This is a square card, 150mm by 150mm, with the inside greeting, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Next is Santa and Robin's present. A traditional illustrated Santa standing in the snow against a night sky, with his sack and sleigh laden with presents. Santa's arm is extended and he is offering a gift to a Robin. This is a rectangular card, 127mm by 178mm, and the greeting is Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Christmas Service A traditional winter scene illustration featuring six choristers entering through the porch of a warm, glowing church, heralding the start of an evening carol service. This is a rectangular card, 121mm by 171mm, with the greeting, with best wishes for Christmas and the new year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Now we come to a very popular card, Robin in the Snow. This classic card features a beautiful photograph of a plump robin perched on a sprig of holly, its red berries topped with flakes of snow. This square card measures 150mm by 150mm and carries the greeting, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Our fifth card is three stockings. This simple, uncluttered, textured card shows three red and white children's stockings, beautifully drawn, hanging from a bright red ribbon and waiting to be filled. Above the ribbon are the words Merry Christmas. This card is a small square-sized 125 by 125 millimetres and the inside greeting reads Happy Christmas. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.50. Our next card is titled A Winter's Night. An eye-catching illustrated card shows snow falling on a winter woodland night. A stag can be seen standing majestically beneath the boughs of the wintry trees. A rectangular card measuring 120mm by 171mm with the greeting with best wishes for Christmas and the new year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Winter hair. This textured illustration shows a beautiful scene of a hare sitting in the snow gazing up at a full moon surrounded by gentle flakes of snow and winter plants covered in red berries. This square card is 150mm by 150mm and the inside greeting is with best wishes for Christmas and the new year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Our final Christmas card is Postbox and Telephone Box. This nostalgic photograph features a red postbox alongside a red telephone box on a street in front of snow-covered railings. This card reflects that our service to our members is always at the heart of our work. A square card 137mm by 137mm with the greeting 
With best wishes for Christmas and the new year. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. Our ever popular Christmas variety pack is also available. An assorted pack of 15 cards of traditional favourites with a variety of seasonal greetings. Packs may include winter illustrations, animals in the snow, and of course, scenes from the nativity story. The price per pack is £5. This year, we have a new selection of birthday and blank cards. These come in packs of 10, with five vibrant designs, two of each card in a pack. Price for a pack of 10 cards is £3.75. All these cards can be posted individually at small letter rate, first or second class. Birthday card designs are a cartoon cat and dog wearing party hats with paw prints around the words happy birthday. A photograph of a cupcake with three lit birthday candles. The words happy birthday are across the top of the card. Three brightly coloured yellow, pink and orange gerbera on a white background. Four beautifully wrapped presents under the words happy birthday. A teddy bear holding a note saying happy birthday. Each card carries the greeting of happy birthday inside. Blank or message cards. For the first time, we're introducing a range of blank or message cards, perfect for you to personalise what you want to say to your loved ones. The designs are a photograph of a row of brightly coloured beach huts standing on a sandy beach, a fine art illustration of three garden birds on blossom-covered twigs against a white background, a wonderful close-up photograph of bluebells in a spring meadow, a cork bursts from the neck of a celebratory bottle, a stylistic drawing of a 1920s typewriter shows a sheet with the words a note at the top just perfect for you to write your own message. And last but not least, our 2020 calendar. This is a large landscape calendar which opens up to display at the top a picture and below the days of the month, with room for writing appointments or reminders. The theme this year is vibrant photographs of seasonal flowers. The front cover features August's photograph of a stunning close-up of a sunflower. The monthly pictures are January snowdrops. February Purple Croci, Woodland Daffodils for March, April Delicate Pink Cherry Blossom, May Blue Hepatica Nobilis, for June a gorgeous cream and red rose in full bloom, a purple water lily for July, August Sunflowers, September Passion Flowers, October features a Japanese lantern plant, November carries a field of remembrance poppies, and for December a sprig of holly with stunning red berries. The calendar measures 230mm by 340mm and comes with a large envelope. It costs £7. If you are intending to post our calendar as a gift, it will be the price for a small parcel. If you would like to order any of the items described, we have three simple ways you can do so. Calling us on 01296 432 339, Monday to Friday, between 9am and 5pm. Please make sure you have your credit or debit card available. Our membership services team are happy to assist you. If you have received our Christmas catalogue by post, just complete the enclosed order form with your cheque or payment details and send it all to us using the enclosed free post envelope. Or, if you prefer to shop online, all the details of our Christmas merchandise with images of the items are on our website, www.caliber.com.
www.ordinary.org.uk in the shop area. We do add a charge for postage and packing of £3.50 for UK orders and £7 for overseas orders. To ensure we can deliver your items in time for the Christmas posting dates, please can you let us have your order by Monday the 2nd of December. We know you value and appreciate your audiobooks from Calibre. We can only keep our service accessible to all who need it through the support of our members, your family and friends. If you are able to, we would be grateful if you could send us a Christmas donation to help us maintain the audiobook library with or without your Christmas order. Happy shopping! That concludes this edition of the Calibre Echo. But before we go, we just wanted to let you know of a new decision being implemented. From October 2019, we will be issuing MP3 CDs for three months instead of six months. This is to bring them in line with USB memory sticks and to make it less confusing with only having one return date to remember for both of these formats. Thank you for listening, and though it is ridiculously early, we won't have another chance to say this before the event, so we wish you a happy Christmas and a happy and healthy New Year, hopefully filled with lots more books to listen to. If you have any comments on the items featured, please contact Emma Scott at Calibre on 01296 432 339, or email her at Emma dot scott that's s-c-o-t-t at caliber dot org dot uk goodbye for now from all of us here and could i remind you to return this recording to caliber for other members to borrow the caliber echo was recorded and edited by kieran potter the music was provided with kind permission from josh woodward you can find more of his work on his website www joshwoodward.com